Thanks for checking out this episode of the Christ Alone podcast. What we'll be listening to today is a, a sermon I preached uh, several years ago, and I've decided to pull them out of the closet and share them here for my Christ Alone audience. The series that I'm sharing here is called uh, Seven Sayings from the Cross. It's based on the seven last words or sayings of Jesus as he hung on the cross, Good Friday. So, as always, thanks for listening to the Christ Alone podcast. If you would like any more information on the gospel, if you have any questions, or like to comment any further on the content of the Christ Alone podcast, please get a hold of me. I would love to hear any feedback. And about the easiest way to get a hold of me is on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Dolacek, D-O-L-E-C-H-E-C-K. Or if you've found this podcast some other way, the podcast feed is christalone.podbean.com. And I'd love to hear from you. So without any further ado, here is the sermon from the series Seven Sayings from the Cross. Father, we just look to you this morning. We need a Savior. The whole world needs a Savior and is searching and searching and searching. And God, I thank you that you have made that Savior available to us here this morning. God, we do just lift up families like the one we just have heard of and families nationwide, global-wide, God, that just have a lot of trouble and just are in despair and in darkness and need rescuing. And God, I, I just I want that message to get out there, God. Help us to be people who are going and telling. I want that message to get out there, God, that hearts would open up and by the power of your spirit eyes might see Christ clearly and they might be saved. That that God, you are a real hope. You are a real hope. My heart breaks for those who who think that that there's no more hope and who lose who lose all sense of hope. It's not the truth. It's a lie from the enemy that all hope is gone. Hope is not gone. And even in the darkest moments of despair, there's always yet hope in You. We can always hope in God. Why am I downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God. And God, my prayer is that we would be a church, we would be people, we would be Christians living in this world proclaiming a message of hope. There's hope. There is hope. There is a real Savior. There is a God that loves and that cares and that wants to rescue. There is a God who is in control. And even in the moments of seemingly um, just chaos, You rule over even those moments and are working in together for our good and for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purposes. God, there's always reason for hope. And God, I pray that You would Give us hearts open to that truth in this place this morning that we might hear the message of hope and rejoice. Give us eyes to see You clearly that we might see the beauty that You hold, that we might rejoice in who You are as God of all creation, as Savior redeeming everything, and as Holy Spirit filling this place even right now. Filling this place even right now. Filling the individuals. Filling Your church that it might be empowered to live a life that glorifies You. To live a life worthy of the calling to which You've called us. So, Holy Spirit, fill this place right now. God, I do not rely on anything that I have to say that it might make any difference. God, I do not depend on that. The Holy Spirit has got to move in this place. 
that hearts might be changed, that lives might be revolutionized, and that You might be glorified above all else in this place. God, have Your way in this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 19 is where we're going to be headed this morning. We're going through the seven last words of Jesus, the seven last sayings of the Savior from the cross. And I'm taking a lot of this. I'm reading through a book by A.W. Pink called The Seven Last Sayings of the Savior on the Cross. And so I'm getting a lot of that from this this one book, but uh, not not just from there. I'm not plagiarizing his book by any means, but it's a great book that if you're interested in anything that we're talking about, um, I would encourage you to get. Um, it's pretty a classic work on The Seven Last Sayings. These aren't sayings just for Easter. And lots of times they'll have an Easter program where they'll go leading up to Holy Week, they'll do the seven last sayings of the Savior from the cross. The seven last words, they might call it. But it isn't just for Easter. The cross is good for all all times. And it doesn't matter what week it is, if it's Holy Week or if it's just, I don't know, Super Bowl week, whatever it is. It's a week for Jesus. And it's a week to understand the cross. And so we're looking at these words of Jesus and and... One of the reasons why we are doing this, we're paying very particular attention to the words from Jesus' mouth. And this morning, we don't have a lot of what He is saying. His statements are really just a couple of sentences. But we believe in the inspiration of every word of Scripture. So, when when Jesus spoke from the cross under the influence of the Holy Spirit, um, He didn't do so lightly. Every word that He was speaking served a purpose. And when John, the writer of this Gospel, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, the Holy Spirit was there. We have a fancy term called verbal plenary inspiration, which is just that the Holy Spirit inspired every word that you find in the Bible. So nothing's wasted here. So when we come to the seven last sayings of Jesus, the reason why we're able to do this is because we love this Bible. And we love every word that this Bible says. And so we can dig into every word that these words are not here by accident. And Jesus wasn't wasting words on the cross. He was speaking truth and life to each one of us if we'll have the ears to hear it. So, Christ has gone through much to get to these seven last sayings of the cross. One of the reasons why they're so powerful is you think about all that Jesus went through just to get to the cross, and, and then these are the words that come from His mouth. Words of, we've seen already, we saw the word of forgiveness where He prays. From the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second word that we saw was Him to the thieves there beside Him. And the, the word of salvation to the thief that surely I tell you, the, truly I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So we're going to go on to the third word this morning. But Christ has gone through a lot to get to this point. Christ was arrested though He never did any wrong. Christ was sinless and perfect. Many people are arrested and, 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 um, put on trial for just reasons. Christ was not one of those people. He was arrested though he had never done, though he never did any wrong. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples. Jesus spent his life with 12 disciples, right? One of them, Judas Iscariot, betrays him at the end of his life and sells Jesus out. That would be a bitter blow. Jesus knew it all along when he chose his disciples. But nevertheless, to put that in real life, you might know something's going to happen. And then when it actually does, it's another thing. <laughs> you ever had a suspicion that you think something's going to happen? You kind of think it's probably going to go down that way. Go down that way. But when it actually does, it doesn't make it any less terrible to go through. Christ was deserted by all. We'll look at this a little bit later. Christ was put on false trial. They brought false accusers. 
against Jesus, uh, accusing him of things that were not true. He um, is mocked as a prophet. They beat him. They put a uh, they cover his head and hit him and tell him to prophesy which one of us hits you. He's brutally beaten. They pull out his beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They uh, have the cat of nine tails that they whip Jesus with, which is a very graphic and horrendous um, scourging that he goes through, that they have the whip with all the different bits of glass or stone or leather and shards and whatever that they would whip the person with. And those teeth would sink into a person's back. And literally, when, they, when the Isaiah talks about, by his stripes we are healed, it says that because these lashings would leave literal stripes on a person's back from the lashings that he was receiving. Men often died just from scourging. I have said all this before, but it doesn't hurt to meditate on the, the gravity of the cross. Men often died from scourging. These, this, this lashing would sometimes lodge into their backs, and as that centurion would pull on it, sometimes they would grab ribs, and men would lose ribs from a scourging. Jesus has gone through a lot to get to this point. Um, he's made, after all of this, many people would die from that. He is given a cross, and he's made to carry it to the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Jesus is carrying this thing up this hill to the point of physical exhaustion. They have to have Simon of Cyrene right come along and help him even get the thing up the hill. He's just at the point of breaking. And even then, he gets to the cross, gets to the the top of the hill, and they stretch him out and they nail him to it. It was nails through his hands and nails through, through both of his feet. And he's then lifted up, dropped into the hole, and is left to hang there on the cross and, um, suffer this is going through a lot at this point if this were you you probably have a lot of things going through your mind on what you'd like to say and what you might cry out jesus has led isaiah 53 tells us he has led like a lamb to the slaughter and he does not cry out in the in the way that normal people would but he has these seven powerful words this is no ordinary man these words are very powerful to get to this point and yet have something to say this is no ordinary man on a cross. This is no ordinary man on a cross. This is something amazing happening here. John chapter 19, we'll get to the text here, verses um, 26 through 27. Just a little short bit. Um, they, they divide his garments up. And then here we have uh, verse 25. We see that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his, and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. At this point, they are standing near the cross. You'll read accounts in Matthew and Mark, or maybe Matthew and Luke, where they're removed far off from the cross, and people will say, well, that's different stories. At this point in the story, they are right near the cross. They at some point are driven back by the centurions and have to watch the rest of the crucifixion from afar off. But at this point, they're right there by the cross. Verse 26, When Jesus saw His mother and the disciple whom He loved standing nearby, He said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. This disciple is John that we're talking about, that the writer of this Gospel, John is standing there at the cross with these four women, viewing the cross from a very close place, very close proximity. And Jesus looks down and says to John, behold, or says to, says to Mary, woman, behold your son. And then he says to John, behold your mother. 
from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We learn from other extra-biblical sources that John um, took Mary to his home and that she lived with him approximately maybe 11 more years there in Jerusalem. Some, uh, some people say that she actually went with John to Ephesus and died in Ephesus. John, we know, goes to Ephesus. That's where he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from. But he does take Mary into his own home and begins to care for her. I want to look at three things that this text tells us. There are three things that jump out to me about what what is the point of this text? There's, it's, it's, um, I, you know, it's just this kind of woman. Behold your son, and behold your mother. First thing I want to get to make the point of is that these words are a fulfillment of Simeon's prophecy. We see in Luke chapter three, verses twenty, verses thirty-four and thirty-five. They bring Jesus is born miraculously through the virgin birth, and they present him at the temple, and Simeon is there um, to to um, to witness this event of the Savior being born. Verses 34, Simon has this huge prophecy in verse 29. They said, or this, this amazing rejoicing that he finally gets to see the salvation of God. Verse 34 says, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And Simeon makes this, this interesting prophecy to Mary that not only is Jesus going to be a sign for all these people, but a sword will be pierced through your own soul. And so the gravity of a mother watching her son not only suffer and die, but watching her son be nailed to a cross and hang there and suffer and die for the sins of the world, a sword is being pierced through her own heart also. The point that I get, want to make out of this is that God knows what's going on. Simeon has this prophecy under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this is going to end to the grief of Mary. That she's going to witness this and it's going to end in grief. Now, the Jews were under the impression that the Messiah was going to come and set everything right, overthrow the Roman government and set up His earthly kingdom on earth. And that's what they're looking for. And that's going to happen one day. There's two comings of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus, though, Simeon prophecies is going to end in the heartbreak of Mary. So, I mean, who's the cross is not God's plan gone wrong. The cross is not God's plan gone wrong. It's God's plan gone just as He designed for it to go in the mystery and majesty of who He is. Who is in charge in this situation when we read the crucifixion of Jesus? Who is in charge here? By all appearances, you might say the Roman guards are in charge. You might say... Um, Caiaphas, the high priest, is in charge who brings up these charges. You might say Pilate is in charge who actually has the authority to condemn him to death. But the truth is that over all of them, God is in charge. God is in charge. And so I want to just bring that and lay the weight of that on our lives. You look around you and see lots of circumstances and it's very convincing in many places that you look that many various things are in charge. And many various things are what's controlling your life. And I want to tell you, this is a solid ground, a solid foundation you can stand on. No one has higher authority than God. God is in charge. God is in charge. God rules and reigns. We are called to be warm blanket or deep breathing Christians, I like to say. Deep breathing Christians who that when all the circumstances change, we don't start hyperventilating. Oh my gosh, God has lost control. No. My God is in 
control. And at times when it seems like everything is going out of control, He is still in control. God is in control of this moment. Um, move on. The second thing I want to just kind of hit on, Christ is obedient when there is good reason not to be. Christ is obedient when there is good reason not to be. Having a good reason to sin, having a good reason to sin doesn't make sin okay. Having good reason to sin doesn't make sin okay. Um, you live with this mentality. I live with this mentality of repentance usually comes with a but in there somewhere. A repentance usually is, I'm sorry I did that, but you understand that the reason why I did that is, and having a reason doesn't make it not sin, which I know is not a good sentence, but having a reason doesn't make sin okay. So where on this cross we see Jesus hanging here? Where is sin? I got two questions I want to ask. The first one is, where is the sin? We, I, I've got, here's a list. Exodus 20.12, Deuteronomy 5.16, Matthew 5.15.4, 19.19, Mark 7.10, Mark 10.19, Luke 18.20. I know you don't have all those down. I'm sorry, look them up yourself. We'll just go to Matthew 14 because you'll see these references to this command in Scripture is all throughout the Bible. That's why I listed off that big long list that you couldn't keep track of. Matthew 15.4 says it just this way. Jesus Himself speaking. He says, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. The command comes down from Scripture in several different places we find of honor your father and your mother. Other places it says, Honor your father and mother that it might go well with you. Um, that there is this there is this command for you to honor your father and and your mother. Sin is not just a committing of the wrong thing. Sin is also sometimes the not doing the right thing. And we call this sins of commission or sins of omission. That there are sins of commission where you know that you shouldn't do something and you go ahead and you do it anyway. You are committing sin. But there also is sins of omission where you know the right thing to do and you just decide, I'm not going to do it. And I'm not committing sin. I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting on the couch and minding my own business. You're not committing, you're not doing a sin of commission necessarily, but it is a sin of omission. And Christ here on the cross is certainly not committing a sin by saying something wrong, but it does make you wonder why is he so particular about taking care of his mother that Christ is fulfilling the entire law. <laughs> On the cross, in his righteous life, he's, he's fulfilling the entire requirement of the law in honoring his mother. He doesn't, um, he's not committing sin, but he certainly is not going to admit to do what's right. And the thing is, is he would have had good reason at this point to admit taking care of his mother. What's, um, where is the sin and, and what's the good reason? I got a couple of good reasons why, um, why Jesus could have cut a break here. One, the main reason is, you realize that at this point, he's atoning for the sins of the entire world. For all of mankind, First John tells us that not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world. And I don't know what, exactly what that means, other than that's a pretty grand definition of Jesus atoning for the sins of the entire world. That's pretty big. And that's what Jesus is about right here. He has what I would say is good reason to go ahead and, and let this one slide off and, and, and go ahead and have a sin of omission by not taking care of his mother at this time. He should get a pass here, but he doesn't take it. 
He doesn't take the pass. He doesn't take the pass. He neither does wrong nor fails to do right. My question is, is how quick are you to excuse yourself because of your good reasons? How quick are you to excuse yourself because of your good reasons? Um, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. I'll make it, I'll, I'll stop pointing the finger at everybody else. I do this. Where we get into life, living life, and I've done something wrong, I've messed something up, and I say, yeah, I've done this, but you know, there's this really good reason. The reason why I did that, and that somehow that makes it less of a sin. That isn't the Bible message. That isn't the Bible message. Having a good reason doesn't make it not sin. Doesn't make sin okay. We live in a culture that loves reasons. We live in a culture that loves reasons. And we, we build a whole society that's just based off of, well, I have good reason for the thing, for doing things the way that I do them. And that's, I'm not, and I'm not saying that, uh, reasons aren't real. That you don't have reasons. But reasons don't make it right. Reasons don't make it right. We have a culture of men my age who are sitting at home playing video games and treating, treating their wives terribly and just being horrible fathers. I mean, just, and we could go on and say the reason is because, well, and they might say, well, the reason is I didn't have, my dad didn't do a very good job with me when I was growing up. Well, that's a fine reason, but it doesn't mean it's okay. It's a fine reason, I suppose. It doesn't mean it's okay. You're now all through your 20s and all through your 30s. You're supposed to be at this point, it's you. It's you. And it, just because you have a good reason doesn't mean it's not sin. And that there's seriousness to sin that we don't want to be people that just say, well, now I got these are all my things that I that made me who I am. Maybe they have, but having a reason doesn't make it not sin. What is how quick are you to jump to an excuse of why you do what you shouldn't do? The second reason I think that is astounding to me is God displays His love for just the minute details, the seemingly insignificant things in life. If Mary had I mean, I don't know what would have happened to her, but on the cross, atoning for the sins of the world, and he takes time to make sure that his mother is provided for. He takes time to make sure that his mother is provided for. Christ cares about people. Christ cares about individuals in a very real, personal, deep level. Christ cares about you in a very real, tangible... When he's thinking about Mary, sometimes I think that... Um, I don't want us to neglect the small things that God has placed in front of us. Christ on the cross is doing a huge spiritual work. A huge spiritual work. But He doesn't, because He's doing a huge spiritual work, neglect just the rudimentary detail of life of someone needs to provide for my mother. He doesn't neglect that. What do you let fall aside because it's just a small thing? And as good religious people like many of us are, we have all of our spiritual activities that we hold up. We've got to be these real spiritual people and then let neglect just simple things that need to be provided for and need to be done. Life is not mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop. There's valleys of just simple life that needs to happen. Um, it is full of small and seemingly insignificant moments. Husbands and wives don't neglect Small, insignificant moments. That's what we want to do. We think that the ideal marriage is that it's a praise and worship event. 
and that that my uh, my my marriage is nothing but we go home and it's nothing but we sing praise songs together all the time and just have these huge um, spiritual worship services and having those would be great and they're fine to do if you want to do them and and you're and you do them I don't care I'm not saying that but don't neglect just the small rudimentary the small ordinary things of life don't neglect compliment encouragement provision service smiles hugs conversation even as i preach that doesn't that seem like oh that's so trite i mean i don't know that's just the way that it seems like oh what a a sermon about hugging your wife giving compliments to your spouse being nice encouraging um that just seems, that's really kind of low level. But in that, we are kind of betraying this idea that we think that there's these real great spiritual things we're supposed to get, and we can let all the small stuff kind of take care of itself. And Jesus from the cross doesn't take care of the spiritual thing and let the small things slough off. He takes care of the huge spiritual thing, and He takes care of the small detail for the benefit of Mary. Parents and childrens, we want to, and I want you to be parents who are instilling huge spiritual truths in your children. Absolutely. But don't think that don't neglect the the details of just intimacy with your children, prayers and, and conversation with your children, just communication with your children, encouragement with your children out of we need to have this big spiritual moment. Third thing. The beauty of the gospel is that even in your failing there is forgiveness and empowering. So we've here's you know all these things you should, shouldn't do. Don't sin and make an excuse for it. Don't sin by neglecting the small stuff and just, these, Christ is this grand example for us. Christ is this grand example and we are to be conformed to the image of Christ. But I don't say these things just to make us feel bad about ourselves. The, the glory of the gospel is that even in our failing there is forgiveness and empowering. Who is at the cross here? It's this, the three women and the disciple John. We know from Matthew 26, 30 and 35, Jesus tells the story to his disciples. He says that at, at the time is coming where you're all going to desert me. And then Alice said, no way. And Peter says, I'll never, I'll die with you. And they all say the same thing. They all agree with Peter. Yes, even if it's death, I'll, I'll do that. And what happens at the crucifixion, what happens at Jesus' um, arrest and betrayal? He is deserted by all of his disciples. And then who shows up at the cross? one of his disciples. And I find it fascinating. When John shows up, he doesn't receive rebuke. He doesn't receive scorn. You deserted me. What were you doing? Why did you leave me hung out literally all alone? Why did you desert me? John shows up at the cross and what does he find? He finds forgiveness and empowering for service. Do not hide from the cross out of fear of what you're going to find there. What is at the cross is forgiveness. What you find at the cross is forgiveness. The beauty of the Gospel is though, yes, Christ has set this high example that we should, by living lives of grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit, do what He's asked us to do. At the same time, when we fall, when we fail, not run from the cross because it's this grand example, but instead run to it because it is the place of supreme and ultimate forgiveness. You as a sinner deserve the wrath of God. Wonderful message. You as a sinner deserve the wrath of God. You have sinned against God. You have rebelled against God. You have in hatred 
against God, chosen yourself and other things instead of Him. And because of that, the Bible is clear, what you deserve is eternal separation, damnation, and separation from God. But what Christ does on the cross is that He takes the penalty that we deserve, that I deserve. He takes the penalty that I deserve, that you deserve upon Himself on the cross. And He gives, He takes our wrath, right? And gives us His righteous life so that we might find forgiveness. Acts chapter 13, Peter, when he preaches about the cross, this is how he says it. Acts chapter 13, this is the last scripture here. Acts 13, 38. says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, being Jesus, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who believes, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You couldn't hold up the righteous requirement of the law. But in Christ, we find forgiveness. The reason why we can be brutally honest about our failings and about our excuse-making not being legitimate, the reason why we can be brutally honest about neglecting small things when we shouldn't, the reason why we can, as believers, be brutally beating ourselves like Paul says, is because we know that the glorious truth is that at the cross, there's forgiveness. At the cross, there is restoration. At the cross, there is Christ fulfilling everything that I need that He gets buried and is rose from the dead. And we'll look tonight in Ephesians, the sins into heaven, sins the Holy Spirit, that we might be empowered to do what He's asked for, what He has called us to do. The reason we can be brutally honest about our failure and our sin, regardless of having a good reason, is because forgiveness found in Christ is greater. Where sin abounds, grace does more abound. Empowered then by this great love, we go by grace and led by the Spirit to follow where He leads. Christ's forgiveness is offered to all of us in this place this morning. Christ's forgiveness is offered to you in this place this morning. My sermon is, come, come. Receive that forgiveness. Admit that my excuses don't count. Admit that I am, even though it's a small thing, doesn't mean I get to just deny that it's important and come to the cross and find forgiveness.